0: You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. On today's episode, we have Olivia Fox Cobain and Judah Pollack, authors of the new book, The Net and the Butterfly, The Art and Practice of Breakthrough Thinking. Olivia is also the author of the best selling book, The Charisma Myth, and Judah is a strategy advisor who focuses on leadership. Here's Olivia and Judah.
1: Thank you all so much. I'm happy to be here. Have you ever had a really great idea in the shower? Have you ever wondered why you have really great ideas in the shower? It's kind of annoying, isn't it? I mean, why not have this great idea in your office? Or at least somewhere that's kind of dry? Somewhere where you're not trying to open your phone with your wet finger, swiping over and over again, trying to get it to turn on so you can take a note? What is going on with this? It turns out the shower sets just the right conditions to activate the part of your brain that creates breakthroughs. It's a part that we don't give center stage to nearly enough. This is the part of your brain responsible for creativity. And 99% of people around the world have never heard of it. So what is this part of your brain? What is this part that gives us our human genius, our inventiveness, our innovation? It enabled Einstein to discover his special theory of relativity and it enabled Keith Richards to write the hit song, Satisfaction. We tend to think of breakthrough moments as being accidental, lucky moments. They're anything but. And thanks to recent neuroscience discoveries, we can not only explain breakthroughs, we can help you set the conditions to induce them. So do you want to know what this part of your brain is? (laughs) You want to know how to gain access to it? We thought you might. So, without further ado, it's really the story of two systems. And some of you right now might be thinking to yourselves, oh, this is going to be a left brain, right brain thing. No. Take that concept and try and remove it. It's very outdated. Your brain is a series of overlapping networks and we're gonna talk about two of them. The first one is the executive network. Now this one, for those of you who are overachievers, you're probably very familiar with it. It's very fastidious, it's very punctual, it's always got a goal, it's oriented towards that goal, it's task focused, it's making a list, it's checking it twice, it's picking people up at the airport. This is the part of you that you put on a resume. The second network is called the default network. And it's called that because when you're not on task, you default to it. It's made up of about 10 brain regions everything from sensory information to metacognition, future prediction to memory, error prediction to empathy. We like to call it the genius lounge. It's nonlinear and it's the seat of all your genius ideas. This you do not put on your resume. Allow me to give you an example. Imagine this resume, 2014 to 2016, senior director of staring off into space randomly every 20 minutes or so, and lead of random and meandering walking in the middle of the day. 2017 to present, got promoted, SVP of imagining the world without trees. It's kind of a ridiculous thing to put on your resume. The thing of it is, is it shows our biases. It shows the level of our biases that we would never put anything like that on a resume because the science tells us that it is exactly these sorts of behaviors we need in order to have breakthroughs. Whether it's Dmitri Mendeleev waking up from a nap and having the periodic table in his head or Werner Heisenberg walking home from dinner with Niels Bohr across a park and suddenly discovering the uncertainty principle. The stories about this process are seemingly endless. Now at this point, some of you might be saying to yourselves, well, I'm just not a creative type. I wanna promise all of you that everyone in this room has this system that we're talking about. You have the same exact system in your brain as Einstein. To say I'm not a creative person is equivalent to sitting on a couch for two straight years, basically not moving, and your friend comes over and bets you you can't do five push-ups. And when you can't do even one, you roll on your back, you give a big sigh, and you go, well, I guess I'm just a couch potato. I think I'm gonna double down on this couch sitting thing. You know that's not true. You know you have muscles. They've just atrophied. When you say, I'm not a creative person, it's the same thing. Your brain has the muscles. You're just accepting the fact that you're a neural couch potato. What you need to do is practice. Breakthrough thinking is not a theory, it's something that you do. And so you have to get your brain in shape for it. And that means practicing. So what is it that you have to practice? It's three main things. These are the three keys to breakthrough thinking. Neuroplasticity, associative thinking, and mode switching. We use these with individuals, we use them with teams, we use them with entire organizations. So, let's start with neuroplasticity. Eric Weinemeyer has climbed the seven tallest mountains on all seven continents. Now, this means he has climbed the 16,000 foot Mount Vincent in Antarctica. Personally, I don't know why you would do all seven mountains on seven continents, but he did, it's impressive nonetheless. What's even more impressive is that he is blind. And so, you might ask yourself, how did he manage to do this? And the answer is he used a mechanism called a brain port. The brain port is a camera with a little relay that sits on the tongue. The camera converts visual data into electrical impulses, just like your eye does. But instead of sending it up the optic nerve into the brain, it sends it through the tongue into the brain. Now Weinermeyer's brain was not built to interpret visual data through his tongue. But his brain rewired itself to be able to do that. The most important thing you have to understand about neuroplasticity is that your brain is a physical structure. Your brain is rewiring itself every second of every day. For you to have a new idea, you have to literally build new neural connections between your neurons, physical structures. When you have a breakthrough idea, there is a physical corollary in your brain. You can literally look and see the new neural loop that has been created to create this breakthrough. Now the exercises I'm gonna share with you right now are not necessarily going to create breakthroughs for you. But what they are going to do is build up your muscle. It's kind of like doing cardio and strength training if you're an athlete. So here's the first one. And this one we tend to do with teams a lot before getting to a larger question with them. It sort of pops their brains open. So I want you all to close your eyes. And if you're listening to this on a podcast and driving right now, please don't close your eyes. (laughs) And don't look at your phone. But for the rest of you, please close your eyes. And I want you to imagine this thought experiment. What would our world look like if gravity stopped working at 10 p.m. and then started working again at 7 a.m.? How has our culture evolved if that is the situation? Are there nets over everyone's homes? Are the people who own the nets the richest people on the planet? Do people put their beds on the ceilings and then put mats on the floor in case they fall and oversleep? How do teenagers decide to rebel and get in trouble? Do they grab a bottle of alcohol and cut a hole in the net and just float off somewhere? Depending on who you ask, you get different answers. Designers start designing whole houses to be careful for this. Artists start depicting all the beautiful art that could be created in zero-G. Okay, you can open your eyes. One of the things to look for is how was that experience for you, was it exhilarating? Was it exhausting? Was it frightening? Was it a lot of fun? How comfortable are you in engaging in these wide open things? And when you came upon an idea you'd never come upon before and you had to build the structure in your brain to actually visualize it, that's plasticity. Here's another one you can play with at home. Turn on a foreign movie with no subtitles for 20 minutes and try and figure out what's going on. Notice what you pay attention to. You might start paying attention to the tone of voice or the way the camera is angled or what people are doing with their faces or their bodies. You start taking in completely different information, which is forcing you to build completely different connections. Again, it might seem like very far afield from having a breakthrough, but it's building the muscle towards those breakthroughs. That's the important part. When it comes to plasticity, it works both ways as well. It's not just about building new connections, we also have to prune away old useless connections in order to make space. So your brain has a delete button. We have an article about this on our website. You can literally set your brain to forget things so that you create more space so you can have more and new ideas. It's working on both sides. That's just a very quick run through how neuroplasticity plays into this. The next tool is associative thinking. Now associative thinking is kind of the, the magic of the brain because it's taking different ideas that you may not think are connected and bringing them together and finding the pattern, finding the similarities between them that can allow you to have a breakthrough. Steve Jobs once said, creativity is just putting things together. And in many ways, your default network is just putting things together. So Samuel O'Reilly was walking down the street in New York in the early 1900s and looked in the window and saw one of Thomas Edison's least successful inventions, the electric pen. I'm guessing most of you had no idea that Thomas Edison created an electric pen. That's how successful it was. But O'Reilly saw something in it and he took it home and he started playing with it and he created the world's first modern tattooing machine. He was a tattoo artist. He saw something in it. It didn't have to be made out of the blue. He could associate to something brand new and shift the way he responded to it, shift the way he reacted to it. I wanna show you this. So this is a write-up of the opening of the plot of Disney's Pocahontas. This is from a guy, Matt Bateman, online. And what's interesting is if you take the date and you take the names and the place and you change them with, all of those things from the movie Avatar, you basically find out it's the same exact movie. They are literally telling the same exact story. And you can find this a lot all throughout literature. All the games you can play is people layer things on top of each other. So here's a fun one for you to do at home. When you have time, watch the Matrix trilogy. After you watch that trilogy, watch the Lego movie. And tell me what you find. And you can play this game with all kinds of movies. You can play this game with all kinds of books. The patterns start playing over and over again. It's kind of fascinating and fun. So the question becomes, where's the rubber meet the road on this stuff? Why are we even bothering with it? So Bill O'Connor from Autodesk is the head of the Human Genome Project and they've come up with seven essential innovation questions, which at first you're like, are you kidding me? But you actually go through it and you find out that it's actually a very effective guide to lead you through any kind of solution you're looking for and looking at it from multiple angles, multiple directions, helping you associate it in different ways. So the seven questions are look, use, move, interconnect, alter, make, and imagine. Now those seven, each of them breaks down into six sub-questions. So it becomes a very long list that you can popcorn through. And Bill does some amazing consulting work using this. But what it does is it creates a concrete frame around which to engage in a very ethereal process, which is the breakthrough. When I work with special forces, we do it in a slightly different way. And. We look at historical situations and ask ourselves, can we learn anything from what happened in the past to gauge what's going to happen right now? We took a look at the Arab Spring, and we compared it to the revolutions of 1848 and discovered amazing similarities that actually predicted how the Arab Spring was going to play out. And at another time, we took a look at how Germany almost won World War I because of decentralized communication and how there were lessons to be learned about fighting al-Qaeda at the time. So looking into the past to gain a sense of what's going on right now can have a huge effect on what you see as possible, what you see as a breakthrough. One last story I'll tell you about this. Henry Ford West Bloomfield Hospital needed a new CEO, so they hired Gerard Van Grinzen. He had never worked in a hospital in his life. However, he had a lot of experience creating a very attentive, supportive staff. He had a lot of experience being on call at any hour of the night. He had a lot of experience of getting people into their rooms quickly, and he had a lot of experience of putting the guest first. He'd been an executive with the Ritz-Carlton Hotels for 25 years. West Bloomfield has become one of the best hospitals in the world, famous for its breakthroughs and its innovations, all because somebody was able to see the connection between running a hotel and running a hospital, and how moving from one to the other could have a positive effect on the hospital. It's being open to these possibilities that is one of the key elements to doing this work. And that's why I'm encouraging you to play. Have fun with these things. Find the patterns where you can. Go far out of field. Carl Jung's entire Opus that he's passed on to future generations started when he decided to go into his backyard and start playing like he did as a child. So the next time you're hanging out with a little kid, play with them, don't watch them play. Actually get down at their level, see what they're doing, engage with them. It will bring in information you are not expecting and shift things completely for you. It's an incredibly powerful experience. So. The last skill I want to talk about is mode switching. This is switching between your executive network and your default network. And I want to show you an animated video about how Keith Richards used mode switching to come up with a hit song. Florida, 1965. The Rolling Stones are on their first US tour. But they're not the Rolling Stones yet. They're about as popular as Herman's Hermits. What they're in need of is a breakthrough hit, a number one song, and no one knows it more than Keith Richards. One night in his motel room, Richards was trying to write that song. So what's going on inside his brain when he's attempting to have this breakthrough? This is the executive of Keith Richards' brain. It's focused, on task, and has a goal. Write a hit song. There's just one problem. It's not very good at breakthroughs by itself. See, the executive network is great when you need to make a list or complete a project. But when it comes to having a breakthrough, it needs some help. That night, Richards fell asleep. And no longer on task, his executive went to talk to another network that lies deeper in the brain. Now, what we're about to show you is not unique to Keith Richards. You have the same exact room in your brain. We all do. We just don't access it enough. This is your Genius Lounge. About 10 different brain regions in here, all hanging out talking. There's Mozart, Leonardo da Vinci, Marie Curie, Einstein. Welcome to the part of your brain that's working on stuff when you don't think you're working on stuff. That night, Richards' executive walked in and said, QUIET! All right, everyone, we need a breakthrough hit. Now go. The executive went and busied itself with something mindless, in this case, sleep. But it can be doing the dishes or the laundry, or taking a shower. Meanwhile, the geniuses started sharing all kinds of information, from art to music to childhood memories. This was the sum total of Keith Richards's experience and knowledge, and the combining created his intuition. It created a breakthrough. Richards woke up in the middle of the night and began to play. That was how the Rolling Stones got their breakthrough hit, Satisfaction. But it is not just Keith Richards. We all have an executive and a genius lounge in our brains. The key to having more breakthroughs is learning how to switch between the two modes. It's an absolutely true story, and Richards actually talks about how the next morning he woke up having no memory of what he had done. And he saw the tape recorder had run all the way out. And so he rewound it, and it was 59 minutes of him snoring and about 30 seconds of the opening bars of satisfaction. And he said, he fell right back asleep and you can hear the guitar pick fall out of his hand and hit the floor. These stories, as I said, they're kind of legendary. They're happening all the time. And it's about this ability to kind of step into this open space where we allow different random ideas to connect with one another, and then to step back out, to switch out of that mode, back to the executive because we're gonna have a bias one way or the other. Some people are gonna have a bias for the executive, and they're gonna say the executive network is what gets everything done. It's all about hard work, it's about perspiration, it's about discipline. Anybody can have a good idea. It's all about the implementation. I'm sure you've heard all of these things at different times in your life. Other people are gonna have a bias towards the default network. It's all about staying loose, giving yourself time, being open-minded, just letting things emerge. Both are completely true. What we need is we need the openness to allow them both to happen, to switch back and forth. Now, when we work with individuals, one of the things that we do is work with them to create these spaces. These are the sort of spaces that happen when you're falling asleep, when you get into the shower. We have a bias against them. We feel like if we're not using our executive network, we're not really working. And we feel like if we're using our default network, somehow we're slacking off. Somehow this isn't what we're supposed to be doing but to actually create time, to actually use our executive network to create a focus, to say, this is a goal I want, to fill our brains with a certain amount of information, and then to be able to switch modes, to be able to let go, and just let your brain wander about. This is the key, because then when you actually have an idea, it will come back into your consciousness, and now you need the discipline again. Now you need to work on it. When it came out of his head and he had those opening eight bars, from Keith Richards, it wasn't done. The Rolling Stones recorded it the next day in Chicago, and they recorded it as kind of a slow bluesy thing, and nobody liked it, it didn't work. Two days later, they were in LA, they had a different producer in a different studio, and the rest of the band started weighing in on what it should be, and from all of that back and forth, that's when you ended up with the satisfaction that we all know. So the switching between, the, giving yourself the focus, but then giving yourself the leeway to have the idea, and then working hard on the idea. This is what makes it all possible. Now, we've adapted what we've learned from the brain for people to use with their teams, for people to use with their organizations. One of the things that we talk about, and we have an article about this, is what we call quiet and loud brainstorming. This is a way of bringing mode switching into a room full of people, where you simply give everyone a topic, and then it's quiet for the first five minutes or 10 minutes and everybody writes down their thoughts. Then you open it up and it gets loud for however long, a little bit shorter, five minutes let's say. Everybody shares their information and then everybody goes quiet again and writes what they think. You keep bouncing in and out like this through this brainstorm and it gives everybody a chance to bring their ideas to the table. It kind of opens it up in a different way. Another one that we like to use is biomimicking the brain. So you've got this structure, you've got all these different pieces that your brain is using to create a breakthrough, to connect different ideas. And so what we did is we figured out that if you fill the space with people who are mavens, they're really on top of what's going on in the world. People who are makers, they love building things. People who are deep theorists, they're just caught in their heads and they know all of the theories. But then people who are wide generalists, they know a lot about a lot of things. Then you get people in there who have a lot of empathy. You get people in there who have a tremendous amount of experience, all over the place, and then you have people who are kind of like, they're, they're deep in this in terms of their memory. They've been around the block before with whatever it is you're working on. They know their history. This is a way to actually mimic what your brain is doing when you have a breakthrough, but to mimic it outside, to bring all of these disparate pieces together, and then engage them in mode switching, which can create more of these breakthroughs. The reason we ended up looking at how to take what the brain is doing and apply it to people and organizations was because we kept running into these issues our clients had. They kept getting told, you need to be more collaborative. You need to diversify. You need to decentralize, you need to be flatter. But nobody had any idea how to do these things. And so people did things like have open offices. They decided to have Slack channels. How's that working out for everybody? Everybody's wearing headphones, they're reserving reserving conference spaces so they can sit alone, and they're lobbing bombs on open Slack channels and just creating all kinds of mayhem. Because nobody knows how to do this. But our brain has actually mastered how to handle complexity, how to move through complexity and find the signal for the noise. And so by using the brain's systems and processes as a guide and mimicking it to build tools, we have enabled people to start engaging with the complexity of the world while at the same time being effective at being collaborative, allowing diverse voices into the room, being more transparent, being more respectful. This is where the study of the brain is paying off in huge dividends because it is so well evolved for the world that we live in. These are the three main tools, neuroplasticity, associative thinking, mode switching. But the question is still there, what is it to have a breakthrough? What's it like to have a breakthrough? Well, it kind of depends on your own personal breakthrough style. We've identified four. Now, that doesn't mean these are the only four. But when we looked around, it kind of broke down into one of these four styles. The first one's Eureka Breakthrough, which you all kind of know about. This is when you suddenly you know it, it's concrete, it's certain. And there's a great story about the um, Black Hawk helicopters during the Iraq war had Lexan windshields, which is a hard plastic that scratches very easily. It's also used on NASCARs. So these two NASCAR fans who were in the National Reserve were looking at all these scratched up windshields that was costing the Army a fortune, and they were like, well, why don't we do what NASCAR does? They have these Mylar tearaways that they put on top of the windshields. They take all the scratches. You pull them off at the end of the race. Windshield's fine. They did that. Army saved millions upon millions of dollars. And this was just, they had a moment. It just made sense to them. They saw it. That's Eureka. Then there's metaphorical breakthroughs. These are less certain. You kind of, you get an image in your head. You get a picture. You get an idea. You have to interpret it to get the aha moment. And the most famous one, I apologize for the mispronunciation, Olivia, is by August (laughs) Kukule. he's German, I apologize if I just mangled that, who was working on the shape of benzene in the mid-1800s. And he had a dream about a snake eating its own tail and realized, oh, benzene shaped as a ring. It was in the interpretation of the dream that he was able to have his breakthrough. So at first you just get an image and you're like, okay, great, that was helpful. You have to work on it. Again, bring the executive network in to work on it to make sense of it. The third one is intuitive breakthroughs. Intuitive breakthroughs are also less certain. You you know a certain direction to go. You know a path you want to go down, but you're not sure where it's gonna lead. And a great example of this is Chuck Yeager, first person to fly faster than the speed of sound. And before he did it, every pilot had died. No one had gotten faster than .85 Mach, and the controls would get difficult to use, the plane would start to wobble, and the engineers were starting to think it was impossible. And Jaeger had, he had a moment. He was like, I think the plane's going to get easier to fly the closer I get to the speed of sound. Now, there was no reason for him to know this. The PhDs, they didn't think this was true. But sure enough, when he went up in the X-1, the closer he got to Mach, the easier the plane got to fly. How did he know? He had an intuition. There was something about his deep mastery of flying that enabled him to see what was going to be true, and he trusted it. Now the last one is called paradigm breakthroughs. We don't spend a lot of time on this one because it's rare. This is world-changing, relativity-style breakthroughs. They tend to be, to a certain extent, around the luck of timing. They tend to be based on a lot of previous breakthroughs. Einstein was standing on the shoulders of a host of breakthroughs all throughout the 19th century. And you can't really set out to do it. You'll very probably end up down a rabbit hole. If they happen, they happen, and that's wonderful, and we will all be grateful, and you'll win a Nobel, and forever be ensconced in history. But chasing it is going to be kind of difficult. Those are the four styles, as I said, that we know of. So returning to the shower for a moment. Why do we get these good ideas in the shower? Well, the shower sets the perfect conditions for mode switching. You step into the shower and your executive network has just enough to do to keep it occupied. You're going to clean yourself, that's fine. It creates a wonderful space for your default network to start coming on, start working. And you bring your neuroplasticity in, which gives you the muscle to start making different associations. So the shower becomes a perfect place to bring all of these tools together. And you may have one of the four styles of breakthroughs at any point in there. Last thing, it's not going to be easy. You are going to face obstacles. You are going to face difficulties, and you're going to have to push through. To talk about three of these obstacles, I'd like to introduce my co-author and mother of dragons, (laughs) Olivia Fox.
0: How many of you have been scared watching a scary movie? Please raise your hands. Excellent. Now, consciously you know that was just a movie, right? You know that those actors up there are getting paid bazillions of dollars in exchange uh, to looking like they're getting their head chopped off, yes? Subconsciously, however, and in your body, did you have like your pulse racing and maybe your palms sweating? Did you feel anything physical when you were scared watching a scary movie? Yes. Why? Um, with me, please, speak up, shout out. The, hmm? the, brain the, the brain is not very good at knowing the difference between imagination and reality. Let me be a, a tiny bit more specific. And um, I'm gonna try to keep on time, so we're gonna skim over a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of this science, you, if, you, if you buy our book, we'll be very happy, our publisher even more so. Please do. But a lot of this stuff is available for free on our website, thebutterfly.net. So thebutterfly.net. So, Um, Imagination and reality affect a lot of the same pathways in the brain, and they have a lot of the same effects in the body. Now, in normal life, if you suddenly have an experience of fear, usually, A, it's not really life-threatening, and B, it won't necessarily have consequences on whatever breakthrough you're trying to have. However, why is fear a problem? for breakthroughs, breakthrough thinking, and innovation. Well, what happens when you're scared? What does your body do? Limbic system, fight or flight. Yes, so tell me about fight or flight. You're a zebra running away from a lion. What does your body do? Okay, focus on what? Let's get specific. I'm amazed. I would have expected you guys to know this. Seriously, come on. If you're running away from a lion, you're a zebra. I know it's a you know what? Stay human, that's fine. You're running away from a lion, what does your body do? The fight or flight is designed to be an asset. It's it's supposed to help you. What do you think your body does? Being produced, so your muscles, your muscle reaction uh, time increases, what else? Adrenaline. Adrenaline, what does the adrenaline do? It's an excellent signal. The adrenaline, what does it lead to? Raises blood pressure. Raises blood pressure, what else? Yep, so that the blood flows better to your muscle. That's great. Your heart rate increases. Your vision gets more acute. So all these are critical um, things to survive. And what does it shut down? Digestion. Digestion. Thinking brain. There you go. So you shut down everything that's superfluous to run away from a lion. Di- digestion, immune system, and indeed, superfluous abilities like cognitive reasoning which means that just when you need it most, if fear shows up on the way to breakthrough, it's usually fear of failure, and we'll talk about that, that's when more primal parts of your brain hijack controls and shut down the very parts of your brain you need. One small thing to know about fear and... Sorry, I'm running through my brain to see how much I can cram into um, six minutes. Um, you know what, we're gonna move on to failure. But there's a lot more on the website, I promise. Um, in order to handle fear, uh, there's, a, there's quite a few things you can do, there, there are some mental tools, there are um, some physical tools, if you've heard of the relaxation response, it's a, it's a very good uh, one to use, and if you have heard of about meditation, it's an excellent one to use too. Um, but I think that fear is covered enough elsewhere that I'd really like to focus on failure, actually. Now I know that, especially at Stanford, you're, you're told often that uh, you should embrace failure, and failure is good, and that's great. The problem is that they don't tell you how. And what, what is it that we, um, when we fear failure, we fear, of course, the consequences, but we fear even more the actual experience of failure itself. And fear plus failure can manifest in your mind as a couple of things. One, the imposter syndrome, which you may have heard of. The imposter syndrome is this uh, unfortunate feeling that so many people have that you're just waiting, you don't really know what you're doing, and you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop, for someone to find you out and expose as a fraud. Have any of you ever felt this ever? That's pretty confident people, okay. Um, It turns out that since the Apostle Syndrome was first starting to be studied in the 70s, a vast majority of the population has felt this way at some point or another. But what's fascinating is that the higher up the level of education you go, the worse it gets. Current theory is that the more you know, the more you're aware of how small, the sum total of knowledge, the more you're aware of how small your own knowledge is in comparison. But however that may be, The imposter syndrome is caused by a self-image of yourself as not fill in the blank. And for us, with breakthroughs, it's usually a self-image of yourself as not creative, not a genius, not in the valley, Steve Jobs. So you can can rebuild your self-image. And you've got a couple of ways to do this. The the easiest one is going to be to decide which self-image you want. In this case, let's say that you want to see yourself as creative. Um, Second, gather past evidence. There's um, a couple of limitations in the brain that are going to come in handy here. Um, It doesn't have a great sense of imagination versus reality, as we've said. It also doesn't have a great sense of time or scale. Have you ever heard of the science of small wins? So that is... The, the fact that, okay, have you ever had a, a day where lots of little bad things happened one after the other? And you get the feeling that it's just one darn thing one after the other, and somehow that's harder um, to, to live through than one big thing? Have you ever had that experience? That's because our brain doesn't prioritize super well. It doesn't realize uh, instinctively um, what, what the, the different importances are. So small acts of creativity stacked up, if there's lots of them, it can seem the same to your brain as one big creative breakthrough. And we're just trying to change your self-image of how you see yourself with regards to breakthroughs. Um, Another thing that you'll want to do, if you use the science of small wins, a good example, if you see my eyes glancing up, by the way, I'm looking at the clock. So um, another thing that you can do using the science of small wins is start really, really small. BJ Fogg, who's here at Stanford with the, um, what is it, it's the Persuasion Lab, I think, who has um, the method called Tiny Habits, which is absolutely fantastic if you want to learn about uh, rituals and routines and habit stacking, he's the guy to go to. He recommends, for example, that uh, if you want to start flossing, floss just one tooth that is how easy you want to make it. In the same way, if you want to change your self-image, and you want to have an image of your brain as incredibly creative, start really, really small. You could, for example, look around your office and um, start making up backstories for the objects there. Like your photocopier, his name is Philip, comes from Minnesota, and um, he's really big into ice hockey. And you start building things, you start from the really, really, really small, and you start stacking creative habits that way. Fear, failure, and the, the last one uh, of the obstacles, which is one of the biggest ones you'll face and the one that we don't speak of often enough. Increasingly, people do speak about how failure is important and how you can go through it, etc. But the way we handle uncertainty is actually one of the biggest blockers on the road to breakthroughs. Have you ever had the feeling that you're, when you're waiting for a result, and the feeling that you'd you'd rather even get bad news rather than just being left in suspense? That's our inability to deal with uncertainty. Why do we have this uh, issue with uncertainty? It actually registers in the brain like physical pain. It's a a tension, a gap that must be resolved uh, before you can move forward. And just like with fear and failure, You can learn how to handle uncertainty. You can um, practice uncertainty. You can watch a horror movie or a mystery movie and stop before the end. And then just sit. And see what's happening inside of you. And learn how to handle your feelings. There's a joke that meditators often say on retreat, which is, um, don't just do something, sit there. Often, just sitting there. Not running away, not distracting yourself. It's the most courageous thing you can do. You can also uh, use sports games. You can go to a game, you can watch a game on television where you don't know the outcome, which is one of the things we love about games, by the way, and turn the television off or leave the game, and then just handle the uncertainty. That's a good way to practice. You can reduce the uncertainty by learning how to think like a poker player. Uh, My favorite is Annie Duke. She has a great website with lots and lots of uh, tips on there, and she has books and courses, when you think like a poker player, you're always thinking in probabilities. And that can help you, A, narrow down the range, but also realizing that there's never 100% or never a 0%. When um, Annie first started dating her boyfriend, now uh, fiance, um, they're all poker players, her, her brother, they're all champions, and they've got the bracelets, etc. Turns out that uh, her family started making bets on whether they'd get married. And so they actually named the option after the couple. They think probabilistically about everything. So we've talked about practicing, we've talked about um, reducing, and the last one is balancing uncertainty. You'd be surprised by how many very, very creative artists, um, designers, dancers, have taken their entire day and dropped it into routine from morning to evening because it's, um, we all have a, a certain threshold above which our brain goes into this um, fight or flight mode because there's too much uncertainty. So it's almost as if you have a bucket, a scale, with a bucket of certainty on one hand and uncertainty on the other. You need uncertainty to, to have breakthroughs. If you can't handle uncertainty, you'll only do things that are guaranteed to work. Therefore, that aren't innovative, that aren't new if you load the certainty bucket with rituals, routines, and habits as much as possible, then you can handle more uncertainty on the other side. Does that make sense? Okay. Last 30 seconds. Three best tools that will work for all of these. One is a sense of purpose. And when I say purpose, not necessarily higher or altruistic purpose. It's entirely, Hitler had a purpose. It's entirely possible and very frequent to have a purpose that is not altruistic. But a sense of purpose will give you the sense that you're on a mission. Uh, My favorite example is Joan of Arc. This is a, uh, when she started out, 12-year-old illiterate peasant girl who, and this, believe me, in medieval France, I'm French, I would know. This would really be, was, still is, unheard of, that not only she made her way to the French king, not only convinced him to send her at the head of the army, but then convinced the French army, who hadn't made a single attempt in nine months to mount five attacks in a couple of weeks. And She changed the course of that war. Imagine the difference if she'd seen what she was doing as a project. Instead, it was her mission, it was her purpose. She turned that war into a holy crusade. When you have a purpose, it'll help you um, combat the fear and the sense of failure and the uncertainty. Now, if on top of the purpose you add altruism, then that's as close to a magic formula as you'll ever get in breakthroughs. And um, Adam Grant um, has a lot of wonderful research on altruism, which I highly recommend that you look into. Uh, I'm pretty sure there's some of it on our website, along with a lot more uh, brain research for those of you who are hardcore geeks. Altruism is measurably boosts creativity, and it can also help you combat all of those three. Um, lastly, meditation. You've heard of it in all sorts of ways, so you know it's good for you. Think of it not like a spiritual practice. Think of it as a toolbox. You wouldn't use a hammer and a screwdriver for the same purpose. or well, you shouldn't use metta or vipassana uh, meditation for the same purpose. It's a toolbox. There's a lot of sites you can learn about meditation, I think that's it. Thank you very much.
1: We're opening the floor for questions. So there's a
0: destructive as well as a constructive side about creativity. Salvador Dali said, the only difference between myself and a madman is that I am not mad. (laughs) You talk about... Trying to keep that element of creativity in the constructive versus the destructive.
1: You it. Okay. Um, this is the idea when I use the word discipline. You're you're kind of the, the remember to repeat the question. Oh, sorry. So the question was, thank you. <laughs> the question was how to balance the destructive elements of the creative process and try and steer them towards being more constructive. And When I spoke earlier about discipline in this process, that's kind of what that is getting at. It's very romantic to want to just disappear into the default network and just imagine all these wonderful things and and float out and not even think about the consequences of them. Just feel like this is what's important. But the reality is is that we have to go in and have that creative space and then come out and with a very clear eye, a very logical, rational eye, ask ourselves, what am I doing? What is the purpose of what I'm doing? So it's the lack of discipline around the creative process that leads to the possibility of that destructiveness. So there's this mythology we have of being creative where you're just, you're crazy and wild and it just pours out of you like a fountain and isn't that amazing? And there are a lot of artists like that and a lot of artists have been incredibly self-destructive. But if you gain the inner discipline around the creativity, that's how you deal with that situation.
0: Uh, at one point, you mentioned uh, having an idea and then also having to like work with it and like keep at it, even if it's not the initial breakthrough. What, how would you uh, describe like knowing when to bail on an idea? Like, you know, like how, how do you know when to when it's not worth putting in that? You know, it's it's not a good idea from the start.
1: Like, do you have any yeah. tips on exactly so that? so the question is, um, if you have a, an idea you have a breakthrough, and then you're working on it. You're actually doing the discipline thing and working on it. How do you know when to toss in the towel on the idea? Uh, it's an excellent question. There is no exact answer. Some, and it depends on where you get information. Some people will feel it in their bodies. Some people will just know, like, it's exhausting me to keep working on this. And at that point, I'm done. Other people will feel kind of an intellectual wall. They'll just realize, I just, I'm just banging into a wall here. Some people are gonna feel it literally in your heart. You're like, my heart's no longer in this. I was very excited about it, and now I'm not. So there's a certain element of just listening to yourself and asking yourself where you feel about, about, how you feel about this. But another element is going back in. So you don't just mode switch once. You don't go into the default network, come out, you have an idea, and then you work on it. It's a dance that you're constantly moving back and forth. So if you find yourself hitting a wall with an idea, Put it aside, leave it alone, see if something comes to you later. It might take a little while. Screenwriters, novelists, painters, everyone has a story about taking a piece they're working on, putting it in a drawer, putting it under a bed, coming back to it later, when suddenly with fresh eyes they see something. So again, if you get into that executive network mode, and you're just trying to drill down on something and it's not working, that might be time to pull back.
0: There's also something about your question, which is, um, can you please give me a a deadline? I want to know for sure. And that's for a lot of us who work on it, who are driven by the executive network. We want a formula that'll tell us, well, at this point you know that it's no longer worth working on it. And what we hate is the uncertainty of not knowing when we should bail. That's exactly what you need to learn how to handle. Because unfortunately, I know you're going to hate this, but there isn't an answer. And Judah's going to give you all sorts of intuitive. We've behaved very well up until now. <laughs> I'm amazed. Eight minutes, it can't go too far, bad. Um, he's going to give you all sorts of intuitive, et cetera, et cetera. For people like me, driving me batshit crazy. Sorry, unfortunately, there is no hard answer on that one. So on the other side, sometimes we come with what we think is a breakthrough, what we think is genius, mm-hmm. and then the next day we think, what was I thinking, was I chemically aided like Keith Richards in to the idea? How did I get there? Now, sometimes those were slams on our egos, the thing I thought was brilliant to realize now this was a really poor choice. How do we sort of balance when we think something is great and then we realize later, not so great? I think we can, uh, would it be uh, fair to say that what you're asking is how can we evaluate what we've just come
1: up with, whether it's, what's in your net? Okay, so there, there are a number of tools and this is where you come out of that creative space and actually look at your idea in the light of day. And sometimes it's just having that hard and fast look the next morning. Sometimes it's having a crew that you you run things by, that you trust, that you feel safe with, and you go to them and you're like, so I had this idea. I think it might be genius, but it might be crap. And you know that they'll tell you the truth. Um, Another thing you can do is just try it. Right, I'm like, all right, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna test this out and see what happens. Sometimes what we do is we get attached to our ideas and we treat them like uh, very, delicate flowers and we don't ever expose them to reality and that's how we get caught in that loop which also goes back to the earlier question of like just taking your idea if you're if you're stuck on and just put it out in the world and see what the world does with it and that can sometimes shift you and sometimes it's it's harsh and you're like well I'm not getting an idea and you're like oh and you kind of want to slink away but that's that's sort of a part of it is like a metaphor in your head and, and it just comes, but then you just, you just, it just, it's like a flash, but then you don't know how to start shaping and start working on it. Is there any way we can start, to start with, or how, how, do, you, how do you get that idea that it's not, it has any shape in your head to actually start having it some shape? So the question is, what happens if you get a metaphor in your head? If you get a sort of half-formed idea in your head and you can't, it, that's all it is. It's this half-formed metaphor. How do you actually work with that?
0: First of all, if you don't get metaphors, that's okay. I hate metaphors. (laughs) Breakthroughs, really, what you have to realize is that of all the styles of breakthroughs, and remember, the four that we categorized was just for ease of writing. But there's no one style of breakthrough that's better than another. He gets metaphorical breakthroughs. I tend to get Eureka. You've never had a Eureka breakthrough, have you? No. No, he's terrible. (laughs) Um, And occasionally, I'll get intuitive just because I've been in this work so long. Do you ever get intuitive? I do. Really? Anyway, so just realizing that all breakthrough styles are equally worthy. Okay. Take the metaphor.
1: Okay. So if you have this metaphor and you, you, you can't make heads or tails of it, there's a couple of things you can do. One, again, share it with people. See what they say. It's not that they're necessarily going to have the answer, but whatever they give you will kind of shift your stuck place. Another thing you can do is look at the metaphor and ask yourself, where is this coming from? Is it something from my childhood? Is it something I read recently? What's the meaning of this? Read about it. Look into it. Research it. It might pop you into understanding what is it that was shown to you. And another possibility is take the metaphor with your executive network and focus your default network on it. Go back in. See what happens if you just churn on the metaphor. If so, something pop back out at you. Those are the three main ways to try and engage it. And sometimes, to go to the earlier point, just not really an idea, which happens a lot. <laughs> Let's do one more question. One more question. Where do dreams come into play? At oh, this? boy. <laughs> <laughs> <All> the <dorks. laughs> so the question is, where do dreams come into play with this? And the safe answer is it depends on who you ask. Um, some people will tell you dreams are just a random assortment of things going on as your brain clears itself out from the day's occurrences. Other people will tell you dreams are your unconscious, your unconscious way of talking to yourself, of giving you answers. There are so many stories of people having breakthroughs coming in dreams that for me it's hard to ignore. I personally don't know what the mechanism is But the sheer number of people that have woken up and been like, oh, that's my answer. From Einstein to Mendeleev to Pascal, it it just goes on and on and on. So from my point of view, dreams are a time when the default network is very, very active. And it's it's a kind of a metaphorical way of the default network showing you a connection.
0: just also to say that well, we do talk about the uh, hypnagogic and hypnopombic states, the liminal states between falling asleep and waking up in which so many people seem to have great ideas. It's okay if you don't. I have never in my life woken up with a good idea. I don't do naps well. So apparently for a lot of people, taking a nap can feel, get you feel refreshed. I wake up, I'm like a zombie. I crave marshmallows. So the... the I think that what we'd really want to leave you with is um, learn to work with your styles, your strengths. You'll have your own signature breakthrough styles, you'll have your own techniques that work for you. And there's no one magic formula. I'd love it if there if there were. He wouldn't. (laughs) But work with with what works for you. And I think that's good. Yep.
1: All right. Thank Thank you. you. Uh, you, you. you, you. Appreciate it.